Good morning. I want to make you aware that we're in Genesis 10, 1 through 11, 9 this morning. And you might say, there's no way that's happening. But you can trust me. We are in that text. You will need to turn in your Bible to Genesis 10 and verse 1. We are going to continue in our series in Genesis, primarily looking at the story of the Tower of Babel today. I want to make you aware, though, as we come to that story, we are in the next genealogy. Now, I already pointed to this genealogy in the book of Genesis before when we did the blessings and curses upon Noah's sons. We read some sections of this genealogy and looked at it. We are going to look at this genealogy again today as we go into the Tower of Babel story. Our focus will be on the Tower of Babel, but the genealogy won't be left aside. In fact, we looked at the genealogy in chapter 10 last week as we looked at the preview to this genealogy. If you remember, I said Genesis is arranged around genealogies. You have a genealogy, and then you have the history of the people really focused upon in that genealogy. And so... Last week, when we looked at the blessing and curses of Noah upon his three sons, we saw a preview to this genealogy, and so we got into this genealogy. This week, we're going to come into the genealogy and focus particularly on the story related to the genealogy with the Tower of Babel. So we'll look at the genealogy today. And next week, when we come to the next genealogy, which is the genealogy of Shem looked at again, we will come back to this genealogy once again. So... Just so you know, we'll be in Genesis 10 to some extent for three weeks and then into 11 through 12, 3 by next week. So you get oriented. So let's look there at 10.1. I'm only going to read Genesis 10.1 and then I'm going to drop down to chapter 11 and verse 1 and read chapter 11, verse 1 through 9. I'm doing this for the sake of time, but we will come back to these texts. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So that's the genealogy. Now let's look at the story that follows that. Chapter 11 and verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And there confused their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. 
Let's ask the Lord for his blessing as we receive this for what it is, his word. Father, we ask that you would bless your word to our hearing, that you would cause us to hear what it is the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, is saying to his church by the Spirit. That we would know that this is your word, and that through it you would speak clearly to us, not only giving us an intellectual understanding, but causing our hearts to rejoice in you, our God and our King, to give thanks for the grace that we know in our Lord Jesus Christ, to recognize what is true about us and all man, so clearly demonstrated to us here, and may we proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light in response to all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I remember being asked, and I was reminded this week of a time that I was asked to speak at a rotary here in Bakersfield. In fact, it's the rotary in Bakersfield that membership is really made up of what you might say are the most successful and significant folks in our community. And I was told, you can speak on whatever you want. And I said, are you sure? They said, yes, we are certain you can speak on whatever you want. So I chose to speak to the Rotary on why I prefer to go to funerals over weddings. And I explained to them from Ecclesiastes that it is at the funeral, the house of mourning, if you will, that man considers his end. That he finds out what life is really all about. And then I walk them through Ecclesiastes and discuss the vanity of all their accomplishments, legacies, and financial successes. I pointed out that we all die and we all suffer the indignity of being buried in a wood box. That no matter how powerful, no matter how wealthy, no matter how rich, no matter how famous and well-regarded you are, death is a kind of great democratizer for us all. For you, the rich, wealthy, successful, powerful man will be buried in a wood box under the same dirt that a poor, unknown, insignificant, homeless, drug addict, mentally ill person will be. And you will find that all of your pursuits are vanity, a chasing after the wind. I then pointed them to their need for Christ if they hoped for true blessing and immortality, pointing out that there is no legacy that can survive in eternity. And deep down, we all, we also know human legacy, right? Deep down, we all know this. Yet we strive for immortality and blessing through a myriad of human means. We desire to be known, recognized, remembered, and to have a legacy. It's a little disappointing in Ecclesiastes when you read things like, not even your grandchildren will remember you. <laughs> oh. 
This gives us a sense of enduring worth, doesn't it? If we can get a, some kind of memory of ourselves, some sort of legacy, some sort of recognition. We want our name to be attached to something greater than ourselves, and we imagine that we have captured a kind of glory and immortality if our name is attached to something like that. We desire to be wealthy, to attain some level of power or some level of legacy for our name. It all gives us a sense of security and safety. We feel more in control. And all of this grasping after a name, after a reputation, after a legacy or security or control is a grasping after the wind. It's vanity. What we're attempting to do is grab hold of all the benefits of God without coming to God. We want what God offers. We want his blessings, but we don't want him. We want immortality. And we strive as a culture for youth, for a good name, Because we want to live on eternally in some sense, but we do not want the eternal one. And this is the fundamentally fallen condition of man. We want to be like God. We want what he has to offer. We just don't want him. Children, this is like, or teens, you'll especially Start hearing this from your parents. This is like coming to your parents for all the goods they can afford and offer without desiring any real relation to them. This becomes particularly acute in the teenage years where you start to hear your parents complain or the young adult years that you want my money or the things I can pay for, but you don't actually want to respect me or seek our wisdom, or follow our rules. You want stuff from someone, but you don't want them. We don't want God. We will get the benefits on our own. That is what the city of man has always been after. We build societies in which we strive together for a kind of utopia, We do not look to the Lord. We connive ways to grasp after the blessings of heaven through our own plans and devices. And we can look at this, we can see this from the first city that was built by Cain in Genesis 4 to the city of Babel that we're going to look at today in Genesis 11. To, if you will, every major nation and empire throughout world history. This is because the fundamental problem of man is that we want the blessings of God, to quote Michael Morales, but we don't want God. So today, we will look at the building of Babel, and we'll look at God's judgment upon that city. But before I do, I want to set up, if you will, the building of Babel by looking at the genealogy that precedes it. So here's our outline, if you will, this morning. First, we will look at the genealogy of Noah's sons in Genesis 10, 1 through 32. And we'll look at that 
in just some brief parts. Parts I didn't deal with last week and parts I will skip the parts I will deal with next week, if you will. So we're going to look at that. Second, we're going to look at the building of the Tower of Babel, the city and the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, 1 through 4. And then third, we're going to look at the judgment of God upon Babel in Genesis 11, 5 through 9. So God's judgment upon them in Genesis 5 through 9. So let's look first at the genealogy of Noah's sons. Now I've shown you how Genesis is arranged around genealogies followed by a story. We already considered, for example, this genealogy in light of Noah's blessing and curse, how Noah cursed Ham's line. And we have a long section there starting in chapter 10 and verse 6 with the sons of Ham. We also looked at, and that goes from verse 6, the sons of Ham goes from verse 6 all the way through verse 20. We also saw, if you will, and looked at the sons of Japheth and asked the question, when do the sons of Japheth enter the tent of Shem? And we talked about that last week, and we looked at that, the sons of Japheth starting in verse 2. And then we briefly commented upon Shem. If you look verse 21, to Shem also, and the sons of Shem go through verse 31. We showed how Ham's line demonstrates the wickedness of the nations that proceed from it. So I want to look at three particular emphases in this genealogy, just briefly. Three emphases in this genealogy. I picked up on a couple last week. I'll pick up on another next week or a couple more next week, but three in this genealogy I want to look at today. First, I want to consider how each son's genealogy ends. And then I want to consider how the whole genealogy ends. So to do that, look with me briefly at Genesis 10 and verse 5. This is the end of Japheth's genealogy. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. Now, let's look at how the line of Ham, or the sons of Ham, ends. Look down at verse 20. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. You seeing the pattern? Now look at the end of Shem's line in verse 31. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Now look at how it's all summed up in verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. I actually think this is the referent point, incidentally, for Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, that ponta ta ethne. I'm not going to get into that today, but I did in a Radius sermon at the conference in June, so you can go listen to that on Radius' website if you want. But I want you to understand what's happening here. Moses is telling us that there's a problem that has occurred with the sons of Noah. There's a problem that's occurred with the sons of Noah. They have now been separated and scattered into different languages, tribes, lands, and nations. Now, they're all from the same family. And you understand when you're all from the same family originally, you all spoke the same language. 
But here they are now emphasized as being separated and speaking distinct languages. How did that come to be? See, that's one of the things that ought to jump out at you right away. These are Noah's three sons. They spoke the same language. They were a part of the same nation or family, if you will. And now they're in different families, clans, languages, nations, and lands. How did that come to be? The story that follows this genealogy is going to answer the question. In other words, the story of the Tower of Babel answers the question of how this came to be. In other words, these two texts aren't actually in chronological order. They're in thematic order. Now, second, I want to consider how Shem's line here does not cover Peleg's family. Okay? So look down at Shem's line briefly in Genesis 10. And this is going to really be important next week. But I want to pick this up because it's important at the end of our sermon today. Verse 21. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber. By the way, the children of Eber, that's where we get the language of the Hebrews. Comes from this. The Hebrew people. The children of Eber. The elder brother of Japheth, in other words, Shem's the elder brother of Japheth, and he's the father of all the children of the Hebrews. What does it say? To him, children were born. Verse 22. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Parkshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Parkshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. Great, now we're at the Hebrews. To Eber were born two sons. I want you to notice this because, in other words, there's two lines of these Hebrews, if you will. Two sons. The name of the one was Peleg. For in his days, the earth was divided. In other words, it's in Peleg's life that the Tower of Babel takes place. Now, we're going to pick this up later, but notice what it says. And his brother's name was Jokton. Now, watch verse 26. Jokton fathered Almadad. What you'll notice as you go through there is it never picks up Peleg's line. It leaves it aside. So to the son, if you will, to Eber was born two sons. Now let me tell you about Jokton's line, and we'll leave Peleg to the side for now. So we're going to pick up Peleg's genealogy after the division that happens in the Tower of Babel. In other words... What Moses is doing here is he's saying it's in Peleg's day that the peoples were divided, if you will. And so we're going to pick up his genealogy after the story of that division. Now, there's more to it there, which is that Peleg's line is being reserved for the solution to the problem of man we see here. That emphasis I want you to remember. Thirdly, I want to note what or who is emphasized in the line of Ham. What or who is emphasized in the line of Ham. We picked up the line of Ham in some detail last week, but I want you to notice this. Look at verse 8. We've seen in verse 6 the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, etc. But look down at verse 8. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Don't forget that. Like, let that stick in your mind. He's the first on earth, notice the phrase, 
to be a mighty man or a man of renown. Now, notice what he'll go on to say. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. From the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. You guys noticing what he's saying? Why is Nimrod emphasized? Nimrod called a mighty man in the earth. He builds some of the most wicked cities of man. Namely, he's the primary builder, if you will, of Babel. And it seems he represents an early version, if you will, of a human king who's conspiring against the Lord. He's the central figure in the building of the city and the tower of Babel. So, Remember these emphases as we come into Genesis 11. One, somehow Noah's sons have been divided as to language and nations. That's a problem. Two, note that Shem's line doesn't tell you anything about Peleg and who follows. And three, note that Ham's line focuses in expressly on Nimrod, the man of renown, the mighty man on the earth who builds the city and tower of Babel. So with that said, let's move to our second major point, the building of the tower of Babel. Look at Genesis 11, 1 through 4. We're going to make three observations as we walk through this, but I just want to begin by reading this whole section In 1 through 4, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Are you guys noticing that? (laughs) Had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now notice a few observations briefly. First, in verse 1, the whole earth had one language in the same words. So this is clearly prior to them being divided into languages and nations. They had one language and the same words. Two, The people were all settling, don't forget that language, they were settling in a plain in the east. They were already east of Eden, and now they are going further east of Eden. So you have a rapidly multiplying population of Noah's sons, and grandsons, and great-grandsons, etc. And that population still retains one language. They are one people. But that population is being emphasized as being east of Eden. In other words, far from God. Far from God. Further, they're settling, they're settling in a plain when they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But they instead were settling together in one plain. Now, 
Third observation. The people were employing techne or, or technology, craftiness, in order to control their environment. In order to control their environment. Verse 3, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They are employing a kind of craftiness or technology to control their environment. They want to build a secure and safe city with hardened brick walls. Some scholars argue that what they're doing is building a defense against potential future flood in unbelief. I don't know if that's credible or not. But the idea is they're building themselves a kind of secure place to dwell. Now, I'm not saying that all technology is evil. That's not what I'm saying. I'm pointing out that man often employs technology to control his environment precisely because he does not trust the Lord. Now, I don't have to prove that to a group of people who just came through the pandemic, right, that we just went through. In other words, we've all witnessed man's attempt to marshal technology to control outcomes. We've all witnessed that. I'm not also saying, by the way, that medical technology and the attempt to help with that pandemic is evil. In fact, it's a common grace, if you will. It's a kindness of the Lord that we have it. What I am saying is that it can be and often is employed because men are trying to play God. Men are trying to play God. In fact, the way we use technology is the marvelous demonstration of the twisted nature of our hearts, isn't it? In that we can employ the kind gifts of God to attempt to rebel against him. To overthrow him. With that said, look at Genesis 11.4. Here is the heart of their efforts. So you don't think I'm just speculating. Verse 4. Then they said, you're going to hear it. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Here's the heart of their efforts. They are directly disobeying the command of God to fill the earth. Instead, they are building a city with a tower. Now, first note that they're building a city for themselves. They're building themselves a city. To build the city, they make bricks for themselves. And they actually dialogue about it. Let's make bricks. Now, let's build ourselves a city. They're employing their own human efforts to build the city of man. Second, they are building a tower, it says, so building a city, and a tower with its top in the heavens. That tower is their attempt at, if you will, to quote a song, trying to build a stairway to heaven. If this was like the ancient ziggurat, and a lot of scholars think it was, then it literally, if you've seen those, had a stairway up its center. It was built into the heavens by Babylon. And incidentally, when Babylon built that, the word Babylon means gate of the gods. This was a clear sign, if you will, of false religion. So they're building a city of man and erecting a false religion. They would build a city of man complete 
with their own idolatrous religion. And why would they do all this? Look at Genesis 11.4 again. Notice the two phrases. Why would they do it? And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They wanted to make a name for themselves, lest they be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, I want you to see how this story is comparable with the story of Cain. So keep your hand in Genesis 11 and look over at Genesis 4. Look over at Genesis 4, and I only want to pick up a couple of phrases here. Verse 14, we're going to look at verse 14, and we're going to look at verses 16 through 17. Genesis 4 and verse 14, notice this first. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground. This is Cain speaking to the Lord. And from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. So he's afraid he's going to be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth, driven there by the Lord. Verse 16, look there. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled, notice that language, he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And what does he do? Verse 16, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch when he built a city. So he goes from wandering the earth to settling east of Eden and building a city. And he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. In other words, Cain names the city after his son, which is a way of making a great name for himself, leaving behind a a legacy. He resolved his fear of being far from God under his judgment by building a city of man and making a great name for himself, in which they employed Technology, similarly, if you read on in that story. Further, we see this problem continue with man. Look at Genesis chapter 6 and verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. This is the days of Noah after the sons of God and the daughters of men had intercourse. It goes on to tell us and corrupted themselves. It goes on to tell us the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The mighty men, the men of name. The men of name. That's the language we see with Nimrod. The mighty man. And with Babel, as Nimrod leads them in making a name for themselves, building a city where they settle even further east of Eden. Now, I want to consider what we learn about the city of man to this point in Genesis. There's so much more to say about what we learn about the city of man from Genesis, if you will, 3 through 11, than I have time to say. But let me just try to take some weak stabs at summing it up. This is man wanting all the blessings of the Lord apart from the Lord himself. Man wants security, peace, and immortality. But man does not want God. 
The city of man is always striving for a kind of godless utopia. Don't get me wrong. I do not mean that man is seeking an irreligious city. I think that when we say godless, some people hear atheistic in the sense that they have no religion or irreligious. When I say godless, I mean in the sense that they're atheistic in the Psalm 14.1 sense. The fool says in his heart there is no God. In other words, he denies the only God who is, and he doesn't go to no religion. He goes to paganism. He goes to false gods. Man is deeply religious. When Christianity is being replaced, it's not being replaced by no religion. It's always being replaced by paganism. Look at the secular sexual therapeutic revolution in America. We're not becoming irreligious as a nation. We're diving headlong into the tenets of paganism. And if you do not hold to those tenets, you will be called out as a heretic. And you will be doxxed. We're not becoming irreligious. Fundamentally, here's what paganism is. Fundamentally. There's a lot more to say about it. I'm just going to give you a simple fundamental definition. I do what makes the gods happy so I can get what I want. Essentially, in some way, I please whatever gods I think there are so I can get what I want. And there are so many ways that runs through the bloodstream of America's veins, if you will, that I don't even have time to detail it. But make no mistake, we are not becoming an irreligious nation. We're becoming a pagan one. The human heart will always have some religious vacuum it seeks to fill. Further, like Babel, we're marshalling technology so that we can be masters of our own domain. What you see in Babel is man embracing self-empowerment, self-fulfillment, self-actualization and gratification. See, we don't need God. We'll fashion our own religious sentiments, make our own laws, and employ technology to resolve all that ails us. And we will bring some kind of peace to the world through our human nation building. We will build monuments to ourselves. We'll make a name for ourselves, thus grasping immortality on our own. Matthew Henry, a Puritan commentator, makes some glorious statements about the city of man, about Babel. And, and if you've been with us in the evening service, which I really encourage you to be, because if being in God's presence with his people, hearing from Christ once on Sunday is good for you, it's twice as good for you twice on Sunday. But listen to what Matthew Henry says. We're in Revelation. The reason I point that out is he's going to point to this as well, to the to Babylon the prostitute or Babylon the great, who's actually the mirror in Revelation to what we're seeing in Genesis 11. Listen to what Matthew Henry says about this. Listen to how he sums up what I've been saying. Regarding religion, he says, they would be like the Most High or would come as near to him as they could, not in holiness, but in height. They forgot their place and scorning to creep on the earth, resolved to climb to heaven. Not by the door or the ladder, 
who is Christ, but by some other way. Regarding immortality, he says this, they hoped thereby to make themselves a name. They would do something to be talked of now and to give posterity to know that there had been such men as they in the world. Rather than die and leave no memorandum behind them, they would leave this monument of their pride and ambition and folly. Regarding the city of man, he says this, that they might unite in one glorious empire, they resolved to build this city and tower to be the metropolis of their kingdom and the center of their unity. It is God's prerogative to be universal monarch, Lord of all and King of kings. The man that aims at it offers to step into the throne of God who will not give his glory to another. Babel is man's attempt to step into the throne of God, to grasp all the blessings of God apart from God himself. Nimrod is trying to make himself what only God is, king of kings and lord of lords. Babel is our attempt to have the blessings of God apart from God himself. It's an attempt to do so by our own efforts. See, the great lie is not the 2020 election. That's not the great lie. The great lie that we believe is that we can manipulate the gods, employ technology, and thereby establish a body politic that can deliver heaven, peace, rest, and immortality. We will have what only God can give, but we will storm heaven and take it for ourselves. We will be like God. We will take from him what he's holding back from us. This is fundamentally the sin of Adam and Eve, who bought the lie that they could be like God, they could disobey him, and grasp for blessings that he was somehow withholding from them. They did not trust the Lord to provide all that they needed. They would take it for themselves. Friends, that is the heart of man. And how does the Lord see our rebellion? How does he look upon it? Well, let's look at the third major point, the judgment of God upon Babel. Look at Genesis 11:5, the judgment of God upon Babel. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, there's a chiastic structure in Genesis 11, 1 through 9. If I've told you what it is before, it's, you know, A aligns with A prime and B with B prime, and it's sort of like a pyramid coming this way. And then at the center is often the point. So without showing you how the whole chiastic structure aligns, here's what I want you to understand. The center of that literary structure that's being used is the phrase in verse 5, and the Lord came down to see. It's an amazing mocking of man's efforts. Man builds a tower reaching into the heavens to make a name for himself, and the Lord has to condescend down to earth to see it. Now, you hear what Moses is doing literarily, don't you? He's mocking man's hopeless efforts 
at self-empowerment, man's pride, and man's foolishness. His point is not that God is, has some difficulty seeing, so he has to stoop down to look at something. You entirely misunderstand this kind of language if you think that's what he's getting at. What he's saying is that man's efforts are pathetic. God has to condescend to even consider their tower into the heavens. He's mocking man's hopeless efforts. The children of man had built the tower. This was man's godless folly and pride and impotence on display. God coming down to look at the tower is not merely demonstrating man's pride and folly, but man's impotence, his inability. Now look at Genesis eleven six through 8. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they will propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Now here's what you have happening here. The Lord is commenting upon how wicked man could become if left as united as one nation and language. You think they're wicked now? Imagine how much more wicked they can become. It's kind of an echo of what you see in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden because the Lord says, lest they take hold of the fruit and live forever. He kicks them out of the garden. It's a statement about man's, uh, if you will, the depth of man's depravity. And as a united people and language, how far into the abyss of hell we would go. At times we're lulled into the idea that if the whole earth flew under one banner, then man would finally be at peace. But friends, has the consolidation of power over multiple nations under one banner, ever delivered that? No, it delivers tyranny every time. You can see that in spades in Babylon the Great in Revelation 17 and 18. And so the Lord's judgment here is both a judgment that brings great pain upon the earth and a common grace, or a grace, if you will, a kindness that restrains an even greater evil. What do I mean? It is a judgment in that man is separated into nations and languages. And you write and reply, how's that a judgment? Well, friends, think of human histories. Have separate nations and languages served human history well? Well, we have an almost unbroken historical chain of wars, slavery, and oppression. I'm not sure if historians are able to track down a year in which we do not have wars, slavery, and oppression among nations in human history. In World War II alone, 80 million people died. So this separation of peoples into nations and languages is clearly a judgment. Clearly a judgment. It's not the way things are supposed to be. But at the same time, this separation of the peoples is a kind of common grace or kindness from God. For if one 
godless man seeking a name for himself could unite us all under his banner, we would suffer a greater tyranny than the world has ever known. You can see little pictures of that or tastes of that with Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome. You can think of Hitler's efforts toward that end or the USSR or China presently. And friends, that's what you see with the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet in Revelation. They represent global political power and false religion being consolidated under one united power and tyrant. A mighty man. A man of renown. And it is the most wicked tyranny that man can possibly know. So the Lord both judges us with this scattering and shows us a kind of kindness in preserving us through this scattering. Finally, look at Genesis 11.9. Genesis 11.9 for the summary statement of all of this. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all The earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. It's a summary statement that begins with a pun, doesn't it? It Begins with a pun. For the Babylonians, Babylon means gate of the gods. For the Hebrews, it means confusion. Confusion. This is what the city of man and his false religion delivers to us confusion. So God names It babble, confusion. Man's city and man's religion is called babel or confusion. Or, here's one that would be particularly relevant in our own day, non-communication. Why do I say that? This name is fitting for what's happening in our own nation as we godlessly grasp after a name for ourselves. Listen to what one scholar says about this. Babel would also be a fitting name for our own postmodern world of pluralism, deconstructionism, and therefore non-communication, which declares the autonomy of text and reader and sets meaning afloat in a sea of uncertainty. Revolt against divine and absolute truth has faded lost humanity to wander aimlessly and alone in a silent and chaotic world. Hasn't it? You don't even know what pronouns to use anymore. Babel. This Babel story leaves us, if you're sensing it now, with no good news. None. However, this is exactly why the next genealogy is there. Remember I told you, do not forget that Peleg's line was left out. So go to Genesis 11. Look at how it starts. Genesis 11 and verse 10. Here's the next genealogy. These are the generations of Shem. You have Shem again. The generations of Shem. Now, I don't know if you, when Shem was 100 years old, he fathered a park shot, etc. I don't know if you recognize this, but the name Shem means name. When it says they sought a name for themselves, they sought a Shem for themselves. 
And the name Shem means name. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, or name, pun intended. We're now being tied here to Abraham's story. To Abraham's story through Peleg. We'll look at that next week. But look at Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And I hope you hear the counter of everything you've heard so far. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. You're not going to make yourself a great nation. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and do what? Make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, and we'll learn in verse 7, in his offspring, all the families, all the clans, all these peoples that have been spread out, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. There's a fivefold blessing here overcoming the fivefold curse from Genesis 3 through 11 that comes on Abraham. I hope you hear it. The seed of the woman is coming through Abraham. Shem's line, particularly Abraham, is the answer to everything you've been reading in Genesis 3 through 11. It is in the covenant that God makes with Abraham and his seed or offspring, that we see the solution to the problem of man in Genesis 3 through 11. The whole book of Genesis, all those genealogies are driving you there to Abraham and what God will do through him and his offspring. God will one day resolve all of this in Abraham's son. And this is why Zephaniah, prophesying about that coming day of Abraham's son, the seed of the woman, of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David. When he prophesies, he can say this. Zephaniah 3.9, just listen. For at that time, God says, I will change the speech of the peoples, the nations, to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. And this is why after Christ comes incarnate, which we're celebrating now, and dies on the cross and raises from the dead and ascends his throne in heaven and pours out the Spirit. It's why we read in Acts what we do. Listen to what's said in Acts 2, 4 and following. As they were waiting for the baptism of Jesus, when he took his throne and upon his coronation poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. Listen to how this goes down. Verse 4 of Acts 2. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages. That's what the word is. As the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? 
And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. Folks, we're talking about people from Shem, Japheth, and Ham's countries or lands and languages. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God. All of his redemptive acts. The mighty works of God. All of his redemptive acts from Genesis through Christ. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, here's their question, what does this mean? And what's Peter's answer to their question? Peter says this means that the Christ that we've been waiting for has come and accomplished his work. The seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the one from the tribe of Judah and the house of David, he has come to save you. He has accomplished his work and taken his throne as king of kings and lord of lords. And he's saving you. And then he says to them, you crucified him. And they say, what shall we do? And his answer, repent. Turn from your wickedness. Look to the Lord Jesus. And you'll be saved in summary form. Look to him and be saved. Friends, you cannot build your own stairway to heaven. You cannot achieve safety, peace, rest, or immortality through your own efforts. You cannot make a name for yourself that endures. Nor can any human government, nor can any competing religion do any of this for you. The Lord must do it. And he has done it in Christ. That is why Jesus alone is the way the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father but through him. He is Jacob's ladder. Jesus alone is the only name under heaven by which men must be saved. He alone brings you to our triune Lord. Look to him and be saved. Look to him and be saved. Sovereign grace, our great privilege is not primarily the benefits we get from God, but God himself. God himself. And if you know Christ, then the triune God is yours. And you're his. There is no greater blessing. There is no greater blessing. I said this last week, I'm gonna say it again this week. That's why we gather to worship as often as is humanly possible because there is no greater blessing than to dwell with God's people in God's presence. And that is why we take the gospel and proclaim it to the ends of the earth because there is no greater name than can be named than that of Jesus Christ. And it's why Paul said that he wants to name Christ where he's never been named. It's why we do what we do as the Christian church. It's why 
the Busers will be here at our evening service to give an update of what they've done among the BM, what's happening among the Malayali. It's why you ought to pack the place out to know how Jesus is being named where he was never named before. That's our great privilege. It's our great privilege. May we seek him and know him. He is our blessedness. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks for Christ and the kindness that we know in him, the grace we know, the blessedness we have in him. May we be ever committed to his name, trusting and leaning upon him, being deeply thankful for the grace we've been shown in him. And may we seek to commune with you above all else that we might continue to know you more and more and really experience more of the blessing of knowing you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.